This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is on principle number 11, which we are close to the end of the 12 Principles series, and that went by kind of fast for me. Maybe not for you guys, since we're halfway through the year, but like I said, I have been busy this year, growing the business, doing other things, and so actually being on Principle 11 kind of went fast for me. So Principle 11 is about finding meaning, and the question that correlates with this principle is what is the purpose of my life? Now Step 11, that associates with the principle, says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Karnstoff starts off this chapter saying, life is messy. Life has always been messy. It was messy before our addiction began. It was unmanageably messy when we practiced our addiction. Today, it is less messy than before but still messy as hell. It is going to be messy in the future. We often ask ourselves, when will life stop being such a freaking mess? We are in recovery, so we already know the answer, never. If we can imagine we can control life and make it neat and tidy, we have fallen into stinking thinking and put ourselves at risk of relapse. In a 1942 letter, Bill W. wrote, In God's economy, nothing is wasted. Life is full of loose ends, uncertainty, confusion, and frustration. Yet nothing is wasted or random or pointless. Everything that happens is nourishing compost for our spiritual and emotional growth. It is in the midst of the messiness of life that we often find meaning, or sometimes that meaning finds us. As we live into the principles, we learn to accept both life's beauty and its messiness. We become less reactive to difficult or painful situations. We stay anchored in moments of intense joy. Our inner observer reminds us in both cases, I've seen this before. There's no need to go nuts over it, just be present with it. Paradoxically, as we become calmer and less reactive, we also discover and sometimes rediscover our passions. The pieces of our life start to fit together. Day by day, our life becomes a public declaration of who we are and what is important to us. We experience ever more meaning and more purpose. I've taken a lot of comfort since I first read those words by Bill W. that nothing is wasted. And Carnes's words that nothing is wasted, random, or pointless. I could and have in the past felt embarrassed even like sheepish, that it took me as long as it did to put the pieces of my life puzzle together in a way that fit and made sense and where I could see things clearly, in a way that brought shape and made sense of so many questions I had growing up. I also have to acknowledge that the many questions I had as a kid and teen and young adult caused a lot of doubt for me and that led to a lot of fear. And because of that, I know that I couldn't go to the depth that was required for me to find the answers to so many of my questions, which would have allowed me to put together the pieces of my puzzle. 
the need that I had for certainty blocked the quest for meaning and understanding. So for me, I have to trust that my timeline unfolded on the timeline that worked best for me and that none of it was pointless and nothing was wasted. Now, in this episode on finding meaning, if you do a Google search on finding meaning, there's a lot of things out there that are well-written, that are well thought out. There's a lot that people have to say on finding meaning. There's even a lot that I have to say on finding meaning. And I'm sure that there's a lot, if we were to have a conversation, there would be a lot that we would have to say about finding meaning in our life. And so I've tried to, in the last two weeks that I've been working on this episode, bring down all of my thoughts and all of the things that I could say on finding meaning into what I feel like will be most helpful in this episode. Psychology, sociology, spirituality, and various models of growth have historically taught that human development occurs in stages and through the progression of those stages. But in 1931, world-renowned psychoanalyst Carl Jung brought this into a greater focus and depth of understanding in his essay, Stages of Life. In describing the first half of life, the second half of life, and the path toward personal transformation, which for him were the stages of life, Jung left all of us realistic reasons to be hopeful for the future and our future selves. Building upon Jung's work today, we have spiritual teacher Richard Rohr, who describes the first half of life as the container of our life. He says this first half of life season is all about growing up and building a strong ego structure. During this time, our days are spent designing and confirming our identity, learning order, following rules, seeking importance, seeking to belong to the right groups, obtaining degrees, creating wealth, finding a partner, having children, putting all of these building blocks to our life in place. The first half of the life is quite self-centered and necessarily so. It's all about acquisition, building, certainty, order, and upward mobility. Rohr goes on to say that the second half of life can be described as the contents of the container. This is the time where we discover the meaning behind what we did in the first half of life. This season isn't about growing up, but growing down. In growing down, we learn the lessons of surrender and letting go. And in so doing, we come out of the cubby hole of self to discover greater love, greater wisdom, and a more spacious, vibrant sense of self. So how do we make this transition? And how do we move through these stages of life? Well, this is where the dilemma is. Throughout Jung's writings, he offers repeated warnings of the failure to transition into adulthood. He feared that people would remain forever psychologically young. In Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, Rohr says, when a person spends 30 or 40 years working on first half tasks, the obvious and predictable outcome is that they will become egocentric, enamored with their own self-image and personal success. An overextended stay in the first half of life can only produce people who are addicted to their own thinking, circle the wagons of their own group ideology, and live inside a world of immaturity. So there's no guarantee that if we just live and have birthdays and age that we're going to move into 
a different stage of life or that we're going to move into the second half of life. According to Rohr, there are two primary ways by which people change, great love or great suffering. However, because finding consistent, unconditional love that will also put up with our immaturity is hard to find, most substantial and lasting change occurs through the vehicle of suffering. Now that's not a guarantee that our suffering will move us into transformation or that it moves us into second half of life work. We can resist the suffering. We can push against it. We can hide ourselves, close ourselves off, or we can surrender to the process of suffering. Rohr says in order to transition into the second half of life, there must be a fall that breaks us out of this conditioned state. I think of it as this scaffolding that we spend the first half of our life building, constructing, putting up, and there has to be a fall and it has to fall so grand that there's no possible way to put this scaffolding back together or to support it and keep some part of that first half of life up. That fall takes the form of an unavoidable crisis that we cannot manipulate or maneuver our way out of. Maybe it's a disease, progressive illness, a blighted reputation, the loss of a job or career, death, divorce, or addiction. For some people in our society, that fall happens pretty quickly and pretty young in their life due to trauma or maybe just certain minority groups that they fall into that our society doesn't really have inclusive policies around or we're not open and accepting of. Now, because almost none of us would go so far as to dismantle life as we know it, it's in these spaces of fall that we're gifted the opportunity to drop the pretense, to confront our pseudo-maturity, to reconcile inner conflicts, come to peace with paradox, let go of our illusions and magical thinking, face our pain, face our truth, and grow into our most authentic life. However, if we protest the suffering and we do not learn from it, the alternative is to remain in the first half of life and to be stuck. Now in our last episode on trust, I talked about the addictive system and the recovery system and the renewal system. And both of those systems highlight the importance that our belief system plays in setting us up for an outcome of unmanageability or of resilience and renewal. I often think of the work in therapy that that's what this is all about, right? We're looking at belief systems and we're looking at maybe beliefs that served us at one point in our life, sheltered us, protected us, helped us build in that first half of life way that we need to build. And when we start to come into therapy, we're wondering, we're questioning. I don't think it's working. Maybe the fall has started. Maybe the spectacular fall has already happened. But I think clients often come to therapy to figure out who they are and why they do what they do. Now, maybe initially, you know, on the phone when I do an intake with them, that's not what they're telling me. They come in with other issues. We call them presenting issues in therapy. But underneath those presenting issues is this question of who am I? Therapy is the process of accepting our humanness 
gaining understanding and awareness of our story, and an intentional transformation of the self. Therapy is a moving away from the first half of life and the scaffolding that gave us a false sense of security. I think often most people confuse their life situation or the things that have happened to them in their life as their actual life, where actual life is an underlying flow beneath the everyday events and the experiences. Richard Rohr in his book, Falling Upward, says, when you get your who am I question right, all of your what should I do questions tend to take care of themselves. And I just think that's a brilliant, simplistic way of stating the work that we're doing to figure out who we are and what should I do. And I think when we figure out who we are, I think he's right. Those questions of what do I do take care of themselves. Roar also says one of the great surprises is that humans come to full consciousness precisely by shadow boxing, facing their own contradictions and making friends with their own mistakes and failings. People who have had no inner struggles are invariably both superficial and uninteresting. We tend to endure them more than communicate with them because they have little to communicate. He says, if we go to the depths of anything, we will begin to knock upon something substantial, something real and with a timeless quality to it. We will move from the starter kit of belief to an actual inner knowing. This is most especially true if we have ever, one, loved deeply, two, accompanied someone through the mystery of dying, or three, stood in genuine life-changing awe before mystery, time, or beauty. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first identified the stages of dying in her transformative book on death and dying. Decades later, she and David Kessler wrote the classic book on grief and grieving, introducing the stages of grief with the same transformative pragmatism and compassion. Now, or recently, based on hard-earned personal experience, as well as knowledge and wisdom earned through decades of work with the grieving, David Kessler introduces a critical sixth stage in his book, Finding Meaning. He says, many people look for closure after a loss. Kessler argues that it's finding meaning beyond the stages of grief most of us are familiar with. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance that can transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. So this is the sixth stage of grief that he introduces in this book, Finding Meaning, and that is the act of finding meaning through this suffering, through the loss. He says, your loss is not a test or a lesson or something to handle. It's not a gift or a blessing. Loss is simply what happens to you in life. Meaning is what you make happen. He says, life gives us pain. Our job is to experience it when it gets handed to us. Avoidance of loss has a cost. I think this is what Carl Jung was warning about in his book. I think it's what Richard Rohr warns about or cautions that we could become stuck in our own echo chamber if we don't move into second half of life work. In 1942, the great psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, his wife, and parents were deported to the Nazi, bear with me while I try to pronounce this, Thersenstad ghetto. 
His father died of pneumonia half a year later from the ghetto's deplorable conditions. The next year, Frankel and his wife were transported to the infamous Auschwitz death camp, where more than a million people would eventually be murdered. He was then transferred to two additional camps, separating him from his mother and wife, both of whom would eventually perish. During this ordeal, Frankel came to believe that the only way he could survive and maintain his sanity was to hold tightly to a sense of meaning and purpose. He was fond of quoting the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. For Frankel, personally, meaning flowed from acting as a psychiatrist and physician to his fellow prisoners, as well as from reflecting on his love for his wife, Tilly, as the following passage from his celebrated book, Man's Search for Meaning, beautifully illustrates. He wrote, we stumbled on in the darkness. The accompanying guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to me whispered suddenly, if our wives could see us now, I do hope they are better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. My mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. I understand how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. After being liberated from the camps, Frankel spent his life advocating for the importance of meaning as a salve against suffering and the secret to happiness. Meaning brought him through the Holocaust and formed the basis for his entire approach to life. David Feldman, a professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University and host of the podcast Psychology in 10 Minutes, wrote about Frankel and his approach to finding meaning. He said, it might seem surprising that he would provide, Frankel would provide the following admonition. One should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Why would Frankel warn us to not search for something he so passionately argued was important? He provides a clue in the preface of the same book where he writes, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. In other words, Frankel believes that meaning cannot be pursued as a goal in itself. It must ensue as a side effect of pursuing other goals. If what you really want is to find meaning, he instructs, you have to let it happen by not caring about it. Instead, he suggests embracing activities that connect you with something greater. This may involve connecting yourself with the pursuit of knowledge by working toward a college degree, committing yourself to the care of others through volunteer work, dedicating yourself to the expression of love through raising a family, or any number of other endeavors. He continued, empirical research supports this hunch. While having meaning present in one's life is associated with greater happiness, searching for meaning may be associated with less happiness. Michael Steger, Shigeru Oishi, and Todd Kashdan conducted an online survey of more than 8,000 people across the globe. To assess meaning, they used a psychological test known as the Meaning in Life Questionnaire, which gives two distinct scores. The first score indicates the degree to which people are actively searching for meaning, whereas the second score indicates the extent to which they've already found it. 
The results are exactly what Frankel would have predicted. Greater search scores were associated with lower life satisfaction and happiness. The paradoxical secret to finding meaning may be to not look for it. The most satisfying forms of meaning may blossom not when we pursue them directly, but when we instead seek beauty, love, or justice. As Frankel writes, a cause greater than oneself. The secret to a meaningful life may be to remind ourselves every day to do the right thing, to live fully, to pursue fascinating experiences, and undertake important tasks. Not because we're trying to increase our sense of meaning in life, but because these pursuits are good in themselves. Frankel wrote, Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love, he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person. And even more, he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and of what he should be, he makes these potentialities come true. One of the things I think I've shared maybe on this podcast before, I know I've shared it in groups that I'm part of and groups that I run, but for me, growing up, you know, relationships were somewhat mysterious. They were more of a liability than an asset and usually came with some degree of pain. And so at a you know somewhat young age, maybe, well, I think in high school, the, the thought started to blossom. I just wasn't gonna do relationships. You know, I never planned to get married. I certainly was not gonna have kids. And you know, that didn't happen for me. And I think one of the great adventures of my life is that I got married and I had four daughters. You know, when my husband and I were deciding to have kids, I remember I didn't really want daughters because I felt like if we had boys, they would be more of his responsibility. Whereas daughters, you know, would be looking more to me as a role model as to what, you know, it means to be feminine and the female energy and all of that. And so that just seemed overwhelming to me. And, you know, my husband, I remember him saying, well, don't you just want one daughter? And I was like, I don't know. I'd be okay if I don't have any, but maybe one. So we have four. And I think that's been a learning experience for me. I think it's thrust me into examining things that I hadn't before, asking questions of myself, stretching myself, and being honest with myself and those in my life in order to come to some truths about who I am and who I'm not and what has shaped me and, you know, both good and bad and in the things that shaped me, maybe in negative ways, what could I do to move that forward or to heal that wound? When I was thinking about this episode and working on it, I thought about some journal entries that I wrote after my mom had passed away. And it wasn't a shock to me just that as I was examining my relationship with my mom, I was also examining my relationship with my daughters. The way that that moves woman to woman to woman. And so I'm going to share some of what I wrote. And I put this on 
my blog, so it's not like it's super personal journal stuff here. I wrote, a little over a month ago, my mom passed away unexpectedly. It was December 30th, 2014. She was planning to have a sleepover with her grandkids that night. It was just a regular day, and I had no idea the twist that was about to happen. I called my mom from work at 2 o'clock to tell her that my kids would be a little late for the sleepover, just 15 minutes late. We talked on the phone for 5 to 10 minutes about nothing in particular. I had no idea that by 3 she would be found unconscious in her home by my younger brother. He called 911, but she never regained consciousness and was pronounced dead at 3.54 p.m. after my brother and I watched the medical staff perform life-saving measures. My mom and I had a complicated relationship. We didn't always see eye to eye. We didn't always appreciate each other. We had our ups and downs, but over the past two years, we were making peace with each other and learning to see past our differences. I don't have regrets about the path our relationship took. It was what it was. As I left the hospital and was driving home, the words of the song from Les Miserables came to my mind. To love another person is to see the face of God. I believe that it is easy to love somebody when they are lovely. But to have love for somebody who has let you down, hurt you, disappointed you, and fallen short of who you wanted them to be, who you needed them to be, well, I think that's godly. It's godly because it's so much bigger than me, than her, than what was and what wasn't. And I can accept that. My mom didn't have an easy life. She did the best she could, but was hurt by many things, mostly my dad and the loss of what she hoped to have. And as the saying goes, her people hurt people. Thomas Merton in his book, No Man is an Island says, the beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. That was a struggle my mom and I faced. We had some similarities, but we were also very different. I wrote, it's been a long and difficult month since her passing. I have found that sadness is a familiar companion. There's a game I find myself playing. I pretend that I can replay special days of my life. Certain characteristics show through as I flip through my favorite memories of my mom. The image of her walking towards me with a chair to join me on the sideline of one of my girls' soccer game. Her recounting endless details of a story that really aren't that important. Her curiosity and love of learning. Watching her write in her journal, we're talking about books we both had read. It is so easy for me to play back some of my fondest memories. When I play this game, it reminds me that no matter how good those memories were, certain moments are gone forever. When I was a girl, I watched my mom and adopted the bits and pieces of her that fit me. The talks and struggles we have had through the journey of our lives together have a great deal to do with the values I cherish as an adult and the person I have become. I truly believe that nothing in this life is wasted. Leaving the hospital that night, I felt like I could let go of so much and walk away with the memories I chose to keep of her. Love is complicated, and yet our job is to love others without stopping to question whether or not they are worthy of that love. It's not our judgment to make. 
What we are asked to do is to love, to soften ourselves, our hurts, and disappointments, and to love. It is a life-saving pursuit. And about a year later, I found this entry. I'm grieving. I've been in the mode of grief for almost a year. It's not something you can see by looking at me. It's not even something you'll hear in most of the conversations I have. But it's there. I feel it. It takes up space in my life, in my body, in my heart. Grief has kept me, my heart softer, more open. Grief has slowed me down, caused me to pause more often, to reflect on things I would otherwise hurry past. Grief has unlocked memories from my earliest childhood. Grief has sharpened my senses and caused me to feel more deeply. Grief is a burden that at times feels like I can barely carry. It has been a constant companion and an unyielding teacher. Since being thrust into this grieving process, I have been interested in what those who have walked this path before me have discovered. Stephen Colbert spoke vulnerably about his loss. When Colbert, the youngest of 11 children, was 10 years old, his father took two of his older brothers up to New England for boarding school. Their flight went down and all three perished. Four decades later, the loss is still with him, but it has changed. He says, it's not as keen. Well, it's not as present, how about that? It's just as keen, but not as present. But it will always accept the invitation. Grief will always accept the invitation to appear. It's got plenty of time for you. The interesting thing about grief, I think, is that it's its own size. It is not the size of you. It is its own size. And grief comes to you. You know what I mean? I've always liked that phrase, he was visited by grief. Because that's really what it is. Grief is its own thing. It's not like it's in me, and I'm going to deal with it. It's a thing, and you have to be okay with its presence. If you try to ignore it, it will be like a wolf at your door. Vicki Harrison, who was visited by grief when the man she loved was killed while riding his motorcycle, wrote, It's really exhausting. I'm trying, still, to keep track of that one thing a day that makes me smile is the best part. But even that's difficult right now. I think I did it for Monday and Tuesday, and I think I have one for today, but I'm just so damn sad right now. Grief is like the ocean. It comes in waves, ebbing and flowing. Sometimes the water is calm, sometimes it's overwhelming. All we can do is learn to swim. I wrote, I'm learning that grief takes time. Sometimes when I am in the midst of it, surrounded by it, I wish I could hurry it, fix it, comfort myself and make it go away. Feel something else beside that pain in my chest. But grief takes time. As the year has marched on, grief has taken different forms in the changing seasons. As the temperature has dropped, the leaves have turned, and December approaches, I am surprised at how the memories that weren't as acute in the heat of July become sharp once again. Memories that were in the back of my mind are now in the forefront. I was driving in the car the other day and the memory of calling my grandfather, my mom's dad, and telling him that she was gone played out scene by scene. About a month ago, I was helping my youngest daughter with her hair as she was getting ready for school. She said, Mom, I've been thinking a lot about Grandma lately and I just feel sad. She told me that in her choir class at school, they had started singing Christmas songs to prepare for the holiday performances. And the first day, all she could do was to keep breathing and not cry. 
Last year at this time, we had just returned from a family trip to Disneyland with my siblings and my mom. She was a trooper. She spent a week walking around several theme parks in Southern California with her kids and her grandkids. Then she was off to South Carolina to spend Thanksgiving with my brother and his family. None of us could guess as December came and we celebrated the holiday that it would be the last time that she would not be with us to usher in the new year. Grief is, as Colbert says, a thing. Right now, it's an acute thing. There's not been a day that I don't think about her, about that day, about how I am changed and how certain days are gone forever. Someday, I trust that sifting through these memories will not be quite as painful as it is now. Victor Frankl wrote, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Two years ago and into last year, my youngest was a junior in high school and then I've talked about how she graduated last year. And you know, I don't, like kids do different things during high school. Sometimes they do it in junior high, sometimes it waits till high school. They're trying to figure out who they are and they're trying to figure out who they are that's different from their parents. And you know, that can be kind of a, a rough road to walk with your kids. I've done it with four of them now and it was different with each of them. And sometimes I told my husband, I feel like all I can do is kind of like not get too close, but just buckle up and enjoy the ride and trust that they'll come out the other side and that we'll have a better relationship for going through that. And I think after my mom's passing, you know, I had the chance to examine my relationship with my mom and things that I wish could have gone different and things that went well and that she did well and I did well. And like I said, it also then makes me examine my role as a mother and the relationship that I have with my girls and some things I do well and some things they do well and some things I don't do well and some things they don't do well. And so I was driving in the car, you know, with this youngest daughter. It was kind of during this time and we had had some conversations where she had let me know, you know, that she believed that I wanted certain things for her and that she knew she was going to disappoint me because she didn't want those things. She couldn't really identify what those things were. And I tried in those conversations, I tried to say to her like, oh baby, I don't need you to be anything. Like whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever you do is going to hold value because you hold value to me. She couldn't hear that. She didn't trust that. I don't even think it got through her. But if it did, she didn't believe it, right? And so we were driving in the car one day. I picked her up from work and was going to drop her off at a friend's house. And so, you know, we, I mean, we had talked. She got in the car. We were getting along, right? There were just these moments where we didn't know how to come together. And so she had gotten in the car and, you know, we had talked. I'd asked her how work was talking about what she was going to do with the friends that I was dropping her off at, whatever. And, you know, then just kind of, we're driving, song was playing, song from, you know, uh, my, not my childhood, but my young adult years. I think the song was released in 1989. And it was a song that I really took to heart. And, you know, it's on one of my 80s playlists. This was released when, you know, I was just graduated high school, heading out into this world, realizing this world is so big. There's so much to explore, so many options, so many possibilities. 
and you know just kind of in that place where you kind of have to it's the beginning of figuring out who you are and who you're going to be and what that looks like and what that means and you know that's a that's a tough place to be in and you know this song came out and you know so it was anyway it was on the playlist and so it's just playing as we kind of came to this quiet time in our conversation with each other and it comes to this part in the song this part this song is called sit down by james and i mean it's kind of a one-hit wonder i don't even know if it was that big of a one hit but it was a huge hit for me and so it's just playing and it comes to this part in the verse where it says those who feel the breath of sadness sit down next to me those who find they're touched by madness sit down next to me those who find themselves ridiculous sit down next to me in love in fear in hate in tears sit down oh sit down oh sit down sit down next to me it's a great song i'm not going to sing it for you because then that's not going to go well but you know this particular daughter has always kind of been a i think she's just kind of an advocate at heart and from a young age you know she would you know, she just felt bad for the underdog, for, you know, the, on those on the outside. She was asking some tough questions at young ages and just was kind of, you know, that, that marching to the beat of her own drum and just had this care and concern and a little bit of rebellion in her that, you know, I, I think I got a glimpse of that, I think even before she did. And so this song is playing, it comes to that part, and she looks at me and she says, Mom, what is this song? And I said, oh, it was a song, you know, that was popular when I was like it, when I was about your age. And she's like, you know, play it again. So we played it again and we just kind of started talking about it. And she was just like, this is what I like about it. And I feel like that, you know, that describes me and that's how I feel about people in life. Like, I want to be inclusive. I want... I want to get to know people. I want people to know that I'm a safe person. And I, you know, was like, yeah, I, I know that about you. And I think you are a safe person for people. And then she kind of looked at me and she's like, did you like this song when you were a kid? And I was like, well, I wasn't a kid. I was kind of a young adult, but yeah, like I, I liked the same things about that song. And then we just kind of sat there for a moment. It was a great way for us to kind of come together and find common ground and to see that we are a little bit more similar than maybe she wanted to see at that time. And I think it was kind of the beginning of us getting through some of that hard road, that bumpy road that you have with some of your teens and getting more into a place of like, you get to be you and I get to be me and we can still love each other fiercely and support each other and be on each other's team. Now, if you feel lost or unhappy with how your life is playing out, which I think we all experience times in our life where that is how we feel, I think the first step is to think about what you value in life. And going through the process of identifying these core values can empower us to live a life full of meaning and purpose. Sometimes that's referred to as living intentionally. So one activity that can bring us into this intentional living that comes from the acceptance and commitment model helps us kind of discover our core values and live a purpose-driven and meaningful life. 
Now, this exercise won't take long, but it can have long-lasting effects in helping you to live a life of meaning and start to look around where you are right now and not have to go searching for it, but to look at where you are right now. So first on the piece of paper, we need to identify our core values. Now, our core values are those things that are really important and meaningful to us. They're the characteristics and behaviors that motivate us and guide our decisions. You can do a Google search, you know, it'll give you a list of different values that you could choose from. Often our values are influenced by our life experiences and so they're unique to us. And there's hundreds of different values, but there is a list of some common ones that people have. Some of the things on there are like community participation, health and physical well-being, family relationships, friendships and social relationships, intimate relationships, parenting, personal growth, education or learning, leisure and recreation, spirituality, religion, work, career. There's a bunch of different values that you can choose from. And you know, sometimes I have clients come in with a huge list and I'm like, okay, now what I need you to do, like we're gonna write down every single one that resonates with you. We don't have to like limit it to the top five or the top 10. And if you don't have something on the list that Google gives you, you can write it down yourself. One of the things that's important is that we only write down the values that we actually have and not those that we wish we had or those that people think we should have. So once you've come up with this list, the next step is to prioritize the values because if we have 10 values, if we have 20 values, if we have 50 values, that's a lot. So now we're gonna start to prioritize them. This requires us to take a deep look inside ourselves and to look at where we are currently, because this can change. What my value was five years ago may be different to me today. So we start with zero, not important. One is moderately important, and it goes up in terms of importance. Now, if your values stay the same, that's great. That means that that's like a solid value that kind of just stays with you. It may look a little bit different, like maybe personal growth is your top priority and you're in college or then you start a family and you're learning and reading books about parenting, right? There's still personal growth that comes in that. It just may look a little bit different, but that value may not shift that much for you. Ranking your values in order of importance though helps to ensure that you're spending your time and energy on the most important things in your life. So once we have them prioritized, after we've completed our ratings, then we start to pick one or two values that we rated as extremely important. Now, if you rated everything as extremely important, we're gonna need to go back, refine that list, and see which ones actually stand out more than the rest, just two that stand out more than the rest, even if it's only by a little bit. And if they don't stand out, just pick them. Pick two that you feel passionate about. And then write a simple statement, just one or two sentences about how living this value would look in your life. These statements are called intention statements and they can help us live a more purposeful life that are in alignment with our values. We can review them as we write them down. We can review them every day. We can take inventory weekly. These intention statements need to reflect the way that we want to live our life over time 
And they're not just something that we're doing to like cross off the list or be done with, but that it's actually kind of a higher philosophy or a guiding philosophy for us throughout our life. Now, obviously, in order for this exercise to work, you have to be completely honest with yourself and get in touch with your true intentions. Discovering your purpose and living life according to your values is not simple. It takes work and it's not likely to happen overnight, especially if you have competing voices, if it's what your parents are saying or what your religion is saying or what your social group is saying versus what your voice is. Sometimes it takes some time to hear our voice and get to know our voice. Be patient and give yourself time to figure out what you value and then what your intention statement is. Michael Dominic is a peer recovery support specialist at WeConnect Health Management. And he said, taking the path of descent and learning to find meaning inside tragedy gives many in recovery an inner authority and healing authority to bridge the gap between the inner world and outer world, the first half of life and the second. Their experience is demonstrative, showing us that by falling, we are better able to stand. In stumbling, we discover, and in dying, we rise. Those at the bottom, those who have been rejected, have in many ways become our teachers. They reveal to us the paradoxical wisdom that more often than not, the way up is down and the way down is up. Richard Rohr said this, get ready for a great adventure, the one you were really born for. If we never get to our little bit of heaven, our life does not make much sense and we have created our own hell. So get ready for some new freedom, some dangerous permission, some hope from nowhere, some unexpected happiness, some stumbling stones, some radical grace, and some new and pressing responsibility for yourself and for our suffering world. David Kessler in his book, Finding Meaning, wrote, people often think there is no way to heal from severe loss. I believe that is not true. You heal when you can remember those who have died with more love than pain, when you find a way to create meaning in your own life in a way that will honor theirs. It requires a decision and a desire to do this. But finding meaning is not extraordinary, it's ordinary. It happens all the time, all over the world. The end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. <laughs>